Dr. John uh, Dixon, an author and historian, has written, a new survey has found that less than half of all Australians believe Jesus was a real historical person. This is bad news for Christianity, he said, especially at Christmas. But it is also bad news for historical literacy. He goes on, a survey just released by the church-friendly NCLS research suggests that Australians are as unbelieving as the media. The 2021 Australian Community Survey asked a representative sample of Australians which of the following statements best reflects your understanding of Jesus Christ. 22% agreed that Jesus was a mythical or fictional character. 29% said they don't know if Jesus lived. And just 49% affirmed that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. This is obviously terrible news for Christianity in Australia. One of the unique selling points of our faith is that, that it centres on real events that occurred in time and space. The interesting aspect of, this, of these statistics is that secular historians have no doubt about the factuality of Jesus' birth, life and death. If you consult the Oxford Classical Dictionary, the Cambridge Ancient History and the, and the Cambridge History of Judaism, you'll discover that there is no doubt about the facts of Jesus' life and death. No doubt whatsoever. So obviously, the question, is Jesus a historical figure, is very important. But an equally important question is, who was and who is the Jesus of the Christian story? To answer that question, I want to look with you at some encounters Jesus had with people in his ministry. At first, Jesus was enormously popular. Though naturally unassuming and ordinary, his teaching from the scriptures was refreshing with authority and powerful, and people flocked to hear him. In Luke 5 and verse 17, we are told that Jesus was teaching in a house and there were Pharisees and teachers present who had come from all over Israel to check him out. That the house was so packed that four friends carrying their friend on a mat could not get in to see Jesus. So they did some creative thinking, made a hole in the roof and let him down on the mat so that he landed right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic friends, he said to the man himself, friend, your sins are forgiven. When the religious leaders heard that, in their minds they asked the question, who 
is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus told the paralytic to get up, take his mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up, picked up his mat, and walked out praising God and went home. And everyone was amazed and filled with awe. And the Pharisees and the teachers and everyone else who were left were left with the question, who is this man? Or who does he think he is? Then let's fast forward a few months and Jesus is in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And he's in the throes of teaching Simon and his friends and the houses of the well-to-do at that time were built around a square courtyard where there was a garden and a fountain and in the warmer weather, meals were often taken in that courtyard. And in that culture, it was the custom that when a visiting rabbi was at a meal in such a house, all kinds of people were free to come and to listen to the, to the teaching, and hence the presence of the sinful woman. Now, the interesting thing is this. When a guest rabbi entered a Pharisee's house, three things were done to welcome him. First of all, the host would place his hand on the guest's shoulder and give him a kiss as a mark of respect. Second, because the roads were dusty tracks, cool water was poured over the guest's feet to cleanse and to bring comfort. And then thirdly, a pinch of sweet-smelling incense was placed on the guest's head. But not one of these acts was given to Jesus as a mark of respect by Simon. Not one. But the sinful woman did them all in abundance. When the meal was served, the guests reclined on low-lying couches, leaning on their left elbow, leaving their right arm and hand free to take the food, and their feet were stretched out behind them, and their sandals were off. Now we are ready for Luke's description of what happened. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that, she was, that, that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of welcome ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his, his feet and anointed them with ointment. Well, when she did that act, you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. There was shock and horror in the room that this woman, with her reputation, had gatecrashed the party. No one was permitted to do such a thing, and certainly not a woman with her reputation. For she was a woman whose life was a train wreck because 
of a lifetime of bad choices. But this action that she took was an extravagant, costly act of worship from the depths of her grateful soul. The reaction of Simon the Pharisee was, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Well, of course, Jesus knew precisely who she was. You see, here is Simon, another Pharisee, asking the question, who is this man? He's not behaving like a prophet, letting this uh, horrible woman touch him. Who does he think he is? Let's fast forward again. The time came when Jesus went back to his hometown where he had grown up. All the people knew him. The adults had watched him grow up with their children playing soccer. And they were astonished when they heard his teaching. And they realised that all the rumours that they'd heard about him were true. We read in Mark 6, their reaction. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Is he not the carpenter's son? Are not his brothers and sisters here with us? And they took offence. They too were asking the same question that the Pharisees asked. Who is this man? And then even the disciples were perplexed about who Jesus was. Every day they drank in his profound teaching. Witness counselled countless miracles. After a day of teaching from a boat on the Lake of Galilee, when Jesus decided enough was enough, we read in Mark 4, leaving the crowd behind, they, looked, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. And then as happens on the Lake of Galilee, because of its geography, a sudden wild storm arose. But Jesus is perfectly asleep with a, uh, with a head on a cushion on, in the stern of the boat. The storm grew in intensity and the waves began to crash over the boat and the disciples were scared to death. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I remember the Sydney to Hobart yacht race in 1998 where because of a severe storm, the seas were mountainous. And I remember seeing on the news that a footage of a helicopter rescue of a yacht crew, and it just brought home the power 
and the, 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 the greatness of these waves, they were mountainous. In fact, in that race, many yachts were damaged and had to retire from the race. Some were even lost, and even some sailors perished. It was the toughest race on the record. That is what the disciples faced here in this storm, the like of which they had never seen before. In desperation, they woke up Jesus and said, Teacher, don't you care? And I noticed that they said, Teacher and not Lord. And then Jesus stood up in the midst of the storm and he said, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. And the disciples said, Who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? The same question that was in the mind of the Pharisees, the same question that was in the minds of the hometown people that knew Jesus. And now it's even in the minds of the disciples themselves. After all they'd seen and experienced at this very point, they're asking the question, who is Jesus? Well, let's fast forward again. And Jesus is with his disciples in private. And now he asks them the question. In Matthew 16 and verse 13, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus laid the question on them. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in the Hebrew vernacular, to be a son was to share in all the Father's qualities and power. No one dared call himself the Son of God because he would be guilty of blasphemy. Only someone having God's divine powers and qualities and possessing God's ruling authority could call himself the Son of God. And Peter is saying to Jesus, in no uncertain terms, you are God and, and you are the Messiah that we have been waiting for. You know, there are some great moments in the Bible narrative that just stand out. This is one of them. Then Jesus replied to Peter, which is even more powerful. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you did not come to this insight through seeing my miracles 
and hearing my teaching and then deducing and deciding that I must be God. No, this knowledge was given to you by my Father. This is so important. The knowledge of who Jesus is, is not something we can come to by deduction. It is something that is revealed. Something that the Holy Spirit has made known to us. We did not become disciples of Jesus through our own understanding, through our own calculations, through our own reasoning. We have come to this life-changing truth about the identity of Jesus and what he came to do and what he has done through the personal revelation of Almighty God. Can we begin to understand the indescribable privilege that you and I have had that God himself has personally revealed to you and to me the identity of who Jesus really is? What a privilege. What a wonderful privilege. What do we learn from Jesus about God? You see, the truth is that Jesus is the human face of God. Jesus said, He who sees me has seen the Father. I just want to mention three things briefly. From those stories, from those encounters that we talked about with, with Jesus, with the Pharisees and the sinful woman and uh, the paralytic and with the disciples, what are the things that come to us about God that Jesus is teaching us? First of all, it's this. He revealed to us that God is compassionate and forgiving. In Palestine, suffering and sin were inseparably connected so that if someone was suffering, it was because of his sin. So when Jesus said to, that the paralytic sins were forgiven, which was then proven because Jesus healed him, the Pharisees immediately accused him of blasphemy because they said only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, that is what I am claiming, that I am God. He put it right in their face. That's what God does. He is compassionate and he is forgiving. And I don't think there's any more beautiful picture in the whole of the scripture of what repentance looks like than in that woman who came weeping washing his feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair and, and, and anointing them with that expensive perfume. That's repentance. Bowing down, recognising who I am, regretting all that I am 
and receiving the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Over the years, I've had many people say to me, John, I've tried to find God, but I can't find him. I don't know where he is. Jeremiah said, or God said rather through Jeremiah, and you shall seek me, but when you seek me with all your heart, your whole being, then you will find me. And I can testify again and again that every person who has sought God with all their heart has found him. And that's exactly what this woman was doing when she anointed Jesus. And you know, I think when Jesus saw her tears, I think he had some tears as well. His heart just went out to her. And in that wonderful moment, Jesus is displaying God's compassion and forgiving mercy. The second thing is, we see in all those encounters that Jesus displayed God's, that God's authority is absolute. You know, Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and life. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. We see in each of those encounters how when Jesus spoke the word, there was complete compliance. That what he said happened. There was absolute authority. And see, he was invested and all his words were invested with the authority of God. And so every time we read the word of God, we read the words of Jesus, all those words have the, have the stamp, have the mark of the authority of God. And therefore we must listen. And so all the promises that we read in the Bible all the promises that Jesus made are yes and amen. I could tell you experience after experience of how the word of God, because of its authority, has transformed my understanding. The sad thing is, that so often Christians don't take the authority of the word seriously. It's not just good advice. <laughs> it's the authority of what God has actually said. And we see in what Jesus did, the authority of his words. And then thirdly, we see he reveals to us the enormity of God's power. 
when the disciples in the boat were desperate, fearing for their lives, and they woke Jesus up, and then he stood in the midst of the crashing waves and the howling wind and said, Peace, be still. And immediately there was calm. Immediately. You know, Google may be able to tell us all about the weather, but only Christ can control the weather. And Jesus manifests the enormity of God's power. He showed us the compassionate and forgiveness of God. He showed us the authority of God. He showed us the power of God. Jesus, as we see him in that boat, he's one of us. He's weary. He's tired. He's so asleep that the storm can't even awaken him. He's one of us. He knows when we are weak and tired and so on and so on. But then he stands up and he's God. Fully man, fully God. While I was preparing this message, I thought, why am I not getting excited about Christmas? <laughs> do you feel like that sometimes? Christmas, oh, it's come around again. Yeah, I've got to get the presents. I've got to do this. I've got to see that one. And, and, and then all the tension sometimes of the family arrangements. Who's going with who? And thinking, oh, Lord, here it is again. It's on us. And then I, I remembered an experience I had years ago. when I was standing in the pitch black of night on the Nullarbor Plain and I looked up and I saw the greatest sky show that you could ever wish to see. The stars were just amazing. Amazing. And then I remembered Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, the world can say to us, ah, Jesus, good man, good teacher, revolutionary leader, even maybe a prophet. But we know he is God. And he is one of us. In Psalm 33 and verse 9 we read, He spoke and creation came into being. 
In John 1.3 we read, Through him all things were made. And see, dear friends, this is the enormity, this is the stunning, amazing thing about Christmas. Is that the eternal God, that in Jesus all divinity dwells, but this eternal Christ became at a moment in time a fetus in the womb of Mary and born in a manger. It's staggering. It's overwhelming that the Son of God who threw creation into being became a fetus in the womb of Mary and a man. That is the Jesus, dear friends, of Christmas. That's who he is. God in flesh. And now I am really excited. <laughs> I want to celebrate because not only is Jesus God in human flesh, but he lived my life. He died for my sins. He rose from the grave. And I will see him one day face to face. And that will be glory. That will be glory for me.